We're back in Joel. The goal is to get through verse 11 of chapter 2, which I'd be very surprised if we can't do it, but we'll see. At this rate, we won't make it. At this rate, we won't make it, but we'll see. So we'll jump back in where we left off. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. We're going to do some review, and we'll take it from there. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are good, holy, sovereign, wise, providential over all things. Thank you for the book of Joel, just a book that we're, generally speaking, unfamiliar with, but it teaches us so much about who you are. Lord, thank you for the grace of warning us um, of judgment, or that we um, are not oblivious, but that you clearly tell us in your word what is required of us. And Lord, ask that as we continue to look at Joel, we'd be humbled by studying your character, and that we would heed your word and obey it. We would turn to you. We ask that you would bless this evening. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, we're back in Joel before. Uh, I kind of do some quick review. I thought it'd be fun. Although we have a lighter crowd tonight, and that's okay. Is there anything that you think would be helpful? Again, we've only made it to what, verse 15? So we haven't even made it through a whole chapter. But it's like, wow, this has been cool. I learned this about Joel. Anything that you think would be beneficial for someone else. If not, that's okay. We'll just keep going. He's pre-exilic. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think he's pre-exilic. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people do. That's that's a more traditional um, argument. Right, right. Well, that's good. Yeah, we'll look more at Day of the Lord. Yeah. It starts to make sense. Yeah. New Testament, right. Yep. We'll do more of that tonight. Hey guys, they, ha- they yes, that's what I was going to say. These guys haven't been here the last two weeks, and they're telling us stuff. So you guys have, you guys have got to say something, someone. Yes, it's good to be here. Travis, you look like you wanted to say something. Speak of locusts, yes. <laughs> when in doubt, it's probably locusts, yes. Well, hey, that's okay. We'll, we'll jump in if anything else. By the way. Yes, yeah, we're, yeah, we're still not going to get there tonight, it's, uh, you're going to be down in the dumps, the, the pit of despair, um, but yes, so let me just, you know, bring you up to speed real quick in case you're, okay, what's, what's going on? So Joel is looking out upon Israel, and he is seeing a devastated Israel. He has seen a locust plague that has just destroyed everything, right? You see that so clearly in verse 4. The cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust. Locusts on top of locusts on top of locusts. And they have just destroyed everything. And I argued, um, and, and this is key, we're going to keep seeing this, is that Joel is not just, you know, making this point for no reason. He's looking through, does anyone remember what I called it? Something, something lens. Deuteronomic lenses, right? The lenses of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in particular, Deuteronomy 28. Right? You have the bless, uh, blessings for obedience, curses for, for disobedience. And so he's interpreting what's going on through that lens. Okay? Um, and that's what God intends. He wants us to think um, through that lens. And he's calling Israel. He's saying, look, hey, locusts have come. But that's not, you know, that's, that's the least of your problems, right? Is actually you need to be aware of what's coming. 
that there's something far worse, far greater, the day of the Lord. And so what we looked at last week, um, in kind of verses 4 through um, where we ended, verse 15, he addresses um, three societal groups. Anyone remember what those were? I mean, they're in the verses. Three societal groups, three groups of people in Israel. The priests, yeah, that was one of them. Farmers, the drunks, yes, the drunks, yeah. So those would be the three. And he's really, if you go back to, you know, the beginning, verse 2 of chapter 1, he's saying, hey, all the inhabitants, you know, get the elders, the leaders, to get everyone. And he kind of is taking, you know, hey, you know, whether you're a drunkard, whether you're a priest, you're a farmer, anyone and in between, you all need to have the same common response of repentance. And that leads us up to verse 15. That's where we left off. And this is kind of the theme of the book. This is really the, the heartbeat, you could say, um, of Joel, and he's going to really unpack this through the rest of the way, the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. Verse 15, alas for the day, cry out in fear. The day of the Lord is near. This language of proximity. This is um, the next thing up, you might say, if you don't repent. The day of the Lord, it's near not only on Israel, but for all of the nations. God is going to judge evildoers. Um, and he's saying, look, the locusts are just a precursor of what's going to come. And so you need to repent. As destruction from the Almighty, it comes. There's a very strong wordplay there um, with, you know, El Shaddai, you know, Shaddai and Shad, destruction. This is not good. So if you're like, okay, day of the Lord, don't know what it is. First things first, destruction, judgment. This is what's coming. Okay? And that's where we left off. And Joel, like I said, I'll mention this again. Joel talks about the day of the Lord um, more than any other prophet, okay? So Obadiah, if you take Obadiah's written um, ninth century BC, you know, so 800, same time as Joel, he's probably the first one to mention the day of the Lord, but he just kind of says like, hey, the day of the Lord is coming for all the nations. Um, and it's like, oh, okay, like what is that? You know, it's, it's judgment, but what does that mean? Well, Joel expands on that a lot more, um, especially in, you know, the verses we're going to look at tonight. And that other prophets like Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, um, Zephaniah, they fill out more of that puzzle. Does that make sense? So Joel, you know, Obadiah gives you a bite of the pie. Joel gives you a slice. Then the other prophets kind of give you the whole pie, if that makes sense. Okay, verse 16. Verse 16. So if verse 15 is saying, hey, the day of the Lord is near, verse 16 is saying, here's the, the proof. Actually, verses 16 all the way to 20. Here's the proof that you know the day of the Lord is near. Okay, here's how you know that the day of the Lord is coming. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. And you can see what Joel's saying here. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? You know, it's, it's, the people can only watch what the locusts are doing, right? They're helpless. They can do nothing. The locusts are just coming. They're eating. They're destroying absolutely everything. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Yes. Then he asks the same question at the second half of the verse there. Is not joy and gladness cut off from the house of our God? Yes. All right? Remember uh, from verse, what was it? I have it here. Verse 10, right? Remember, you know, the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. They can't worship God rightly because this judgment has come. So the joy and gladness, it's gone from the house of their God. And there is nothing that they can do. This is an incredibly sad, desperate situation. Verse 17, the seed shrivels under the clods. I'm actually going to pause right there. It's six words in uh, English. It's four in Hebrew. Three of those words, they appear only here in the Old Testament, okay? And so, I don't know if, does anyone not have ESV? What does the NIV say there, first verse? Yes, first line. Okay, similar. Sometimes they'll say, um, instead of clods, like shovels, as if it's like in the, the process of farming. It, we don't know exactly, you know, some of these words, um, but generally speaking, we know, hey, he's describing drought conditions. And this is actually kind of a good apologetic. You know, sometimes people say it's like, oh, you know, the Bible's confusing. You don't even know what it's saying. Look, you know, it's like this verse. We don't even know what it's saying. It's like, it's actually really irrelevant. <laughs> We know big picture generally what's going on, that there is some type of drought, right? So the seed shrivels. There's, you know, the seed isn't even lasting. Um, 
and, and this is kind of the start to, this is actually another key point, not only is there a locust plague going on, but there's also a drought, okay? Um, I mean, you can just imagine, like, okay, sure, it's, it's not good that all the vegetation has been destroyed and there's no food on the trees, but at least we still have water. It's like, <laughs> it's like no, you don't even have that. <laughs> like, this is terrible, right? This is super bad. The storehouses are desolate. There's no food. Why is there no food? Not a trick question. Sounds like Jesus, but it's probably locusts. All right, come on, Travis. Come on. You had one. That, that was your moment, right? It's the locusts, right? The locusts have eaten everything. There's no food in the storehouses. The granaries are uh, torn down because the grain has dried up. There's no food now or next year. And so their, you know, food reserves are, you know, no one's even caring for them anymore because there's no food. Uh, the grain has dried up. You're going to see this throughout. Um, I, we actually already saw it earlier in chapter one, but these drought conditions um, clearly going on. And by the way, if you guys have your thinking caps on, what chapter is this? I think you guys can do this. You guys can do this. What chapter in the Bible do you think talks about rain as maybe a blessing for obedience? Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. You guys don't have to turn there. I mean, you can if you want. What's that? Oh, some snide remark, no doubt. Deuteronomy 28. So, right, we've been in this context of curses are going to come because they've disobeyed. Well, how should Israel interpret the drought that's happened? Well, Deuteronomy 28 verse 12 says this, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. Well, there's no rain, there's no water. They should interpret that as a curse for disobedience, right? That's why the drought has come. So Deuteronomy 28 once again helps us there as well. And so verse uh, 18, how the beasts groan. Sorry, let me turn back to Joel here. Oops. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed. Right? You see how man's sin has brought consequences to the beasts of the field. Right? I mean, it's true. You know, cows aren't people, but, you know, we should still care for them. Right? Um, in God's creative a design that we are to be stewards of what he's given us and care for creation. And you see their sin has brought consequences to them. They groan, they're perplexed, they're, you know, they wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them, there's no food for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. The animals are crying out because there's no food for them. And you kind of see like the, the irony here, right? Like the cattle are groaning, they're crying out, they understand what's going on, there's no food, there's no water for them but Joel has to tell the people to cry out, right? Like, like you could say, like, the people are dumber than the cattle, right? And Isaiah says something actually very similar in Isaiah chapter 1. He's calling them to cry out. And then you come to verse 19 here, and Joel essentially responds to his own call to repentance. He's going to lead by example. Israel, you need to join in and do this. Joel 1 verse 19 to you, O Lord, I call. He understands that Yahweh alone can stop the devastation. Uh, he's the one who can restore not only what the locusts have destroyed, but he's the one who can stop the judgment of the day of the Lord from coming. And so to you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. You see the same, um, he repeats it again at the end of verse 20. You guys see that? Fire has devoured the pastures um, of the wilderness. Scholars on both sides take the fire here probably as symbolic, um, and it, it, it's actually not that far of a stretch. It, for fire has devoured. Devoured is just the main Hebrew word for um, eating, like for fire has eaten this up. Um, it actually kind of makes sense. I think he's describing what the locusts have done, the scorching effect, you could say, of the locusts. They've eaten everything. It's like a scorched landscape, right? I mean, you guys have seen a fire. You know, when a fire, you know, burns through, there's nothing left. It's, everything's gone. Everything's been burned up, right? 
And so probably what's going on here is he's using fire as um, you know, a figure of speech that it has destroyed, it's, you could say, devoured, similar to the locusts, right? They've eaten everything. They've devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, right? There you see that drought language, you know, far more explicit there. I mean, that's not something that locusts do. Like, the locusts don't come and drink up all your water, right? Like, they come and eat all your food, and they destroy all the vegetation. They destroy all the trees. They don't drink up all your water. Um, That's not something, you know, even fire will do, right? I mean, maybe if you have a crazy fire, it's, you know, somehow getting some of the water out. But generally speaking, I think what's going on here is he's describing a drought. And he repeats the same thing again. Fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. I think that's very common in prophetic literature, that repetition, uh, to kind of stress the point even more. Like, this is a scorched earth. Um, You know, you could see what's going on, what the locusts have done. They've devoured everything. It's like there is absolutely nothing left. He is intensifying. This is what has happened. This is what the locusts have done. This is devastation unlike anything we've ever seen before. This is crazy. And it's all a precursor of what? The day of the Lord. Joel's emphasis is not actually so much on the locusts and the past devastation. He wants him to say, hey, look, all this happened, and because all this happened, just like God said it would in Deuteronomy 28, you can be sure that this in the future is going to happen, right? And this is what you need to be afraid of. Yes, you've sinned, but there's still time to turn. Okay, we were supposed to cover that last week. Now we're in Joel 2. So turn the page, or if you have your... Bible, whatever, whatever you're doing, you got the notes, whatever there, we're on page seven, I think. Did you have, yes, questions? Yeah. Right. Yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah, it's certainly possible. So I think always what we're doing is a, a simple way to interpret text is um, the primary meaning of a text is found in that text, okay? Um, but that being said, we still interpret text contextually, right? Um, and so what I would say there, yeah, it's certainly possible that, um, you know, there were locusts that came through and that there's a drought and because of that, you know, fire just completely devastated the whole countryside. Um, I would argue probably what he's doing there, because, I mean, this is common in the prophets where they'll use, you know, symbolic language. We'll see this in chapter 2 and in other places to try and make the point more clear. Does that make sense? Um, So it's it's tricky. It's it's not, we could be wrong, um, but I would just take it as, I think what he's trying to say is, partly would be the, the play on words, for fire has eaten up. Well, what has just eaten up everything? The locusts, right? So Joel could have said fire has, you know, burned up everything. But I think it's significant that he uses language of devouring in the sense of fire has eaten the countryside. Does that make sense? So I think that's probably what's going on. I could be wrong. Um, but Again, that, that's, that's my argument. I mean, if, if again, scholars on both sides, um, depending on where they are, will say that it's probably symbolic. So people that take locusts as, li- peop- so w- what I'm trying to say is my interpretation is not that crazy. <laughs> the vast majority of, right. But no, it's tricky. Like, like going through, well, how do we know? I would always err on the side of interpreting text as, you know, plain sense, literal, unless there's textual warrant otherwise. I think what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, you can look at parallels, but I mean, for me, it was looking at, okay, he's using the word akal, which is just the main Hebrew word for eating. And he's also not really mentioned anywhere in this text that, like, literal fire has been a threat. The threat has been locusts and drought. Does that make sense? So that would lend, lend to it. 
So I'd, I'd say I'm like 75, 25. 75 probably um, referring to Locust, 25. And, and Joel's difficult. Like, I mean, I picked this book, not because it was easy, but actually just because it was kind of hard. <laughs> but I think it's as you guys study Joel, you study a hard book, you can go, hey, I can do this. Like, I, you know, I might not understand exactly what this verse says, but I get the general gist, right? And so, like, with that point, does it actually affect our interpretation of Joel? Not really. It's either, you know, yeah, locusts or, or fire. Does that make sense? Good question. Okay. Right. Right. Right, right. But if they have no water, they can't do anything against it. Yeah. Okay, Joel 2. Joel 2. So, and this is where you're going you're gonna to think with me here. And these are kind of like the questions Teresa's asking. Two major interpretive questions. In Joel, how many of you read, how many of you did your homework? How many of you read Joel 2, 1 to 11? Okay. Okay, good. good. Hey, we're improving. We're moving in the right direction, okay? So a couple major interpretive questions. You guys tell me the answer and why. First one's this. Is Joel still talking about locusts? in Joel 2 here, or is he talking about some kind of, something else, some kind of army? What do you think? And give me a reason why. Travis. So in that sense, you would say fire is still symbolic, right, for locusts? Okay, so you're seeing literal locusts through the passage there. Okay, anyone else? Uh-huh. kind of a trick question, but I'm asking in Joel 2, 1 to 11, is he still talking about a locust plague or is he talking about something else? Possibly Proverbs 29 or 30? Sorry, just a quick. Don, I think you're pro- talking about um, Proverbs 30, 27. The locusts have no king at all, them march in rank. Proverbs 30, 27, yeah. Would you say Teresa? Sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, Yeah. I will say I'm kind of asking a, a trick question because I think Joel is wanting us to actually see similarities between the locusts of chapter one and the day of the Lord in chapter two and chapter three. Does, any, does, anyone, does anyone want to be bold and say, yeah, I don't think it's talking about locusts? The same locust plague of chapter one.
Yeah. So let me ask another question that will maybe help us in interpretation. Does Joel picture this as, and this is also kind of a trick question, but I think you guys, you guys can do this for thinking here. Does Joel picture this as something um, right around the corner, or are there textual clues, maybe from the New Testament, because this is kind of picking up on your homework, that, okay, actually, maybe what Joel's describing here, and you know, by the way, I'm asking my question. <laughs> maybe what Joel is describing here actually hasn't happened yet. Well, we'll walk through this passage, and I think the, the, the concerns that you guys have, because I think you want to say, well, it sounds a lot like locusts, but also there's some things in here that are different, right? Yes, Travis? Well, certainly, yeah, John is quoting the Old Testament a ton. Yes, yeah, I think... Yeah, so I, I mean, this kind of goes back to last week, but I don't think the day of the Lord is just referring to a, like, single day or, like, even a week or even what I would say, um, to use your language, like the tribulation period. I think how the Old Testament authors, how the New Testament authors use day of the Lord is they're looking to a point in time, actually, I would say a period of time where the Lord is going to drastically intervene, clearly in Joel's context, in judgment, but as we come to the end of Joel, that there's actually going to be some aspect of salvation and blessing going on there as well. So I wouldn't want to just actually narrow it down to the tribulation period, but actually a, it'd be bigger than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, but no, John is very much pulling from the Old Testament, I think, um, to help us you know, if we're going back to that analogy of Joel gives us a slice of the pie and the rest of the Old Testament prophets are filling that in, I think John in Revelation is giving us the whole picture of that pie. Um, of course, he doesn't tell us absolutely everything because, I mean, there's, st we still, like, there's still difficult parts of Revelation, right? But God has given us everything we need to know that he wants us to know, okay? So let me move on because otherwise we're, we're going to run out of time here because I think you guys are having some good questions, some good um, concerns. All commentators, regardless of whether you think they're locusts or whether you think this is an army, um, one popular uh, opinion is that uh, Joel 2 is talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and that if this is written ninth century, clearly that would make sense, um, and that, hey, this is, you know, maybe the coming Assyrian invasion, or maybe this is the coming Babylonian invasion, so that's a second possibility. Maybe he's, so number one, he's still talking about locusts, just the same locusts of uh, chapter one. Um, or uh, next option, he's talking about the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Or the third option, which is what I'm going to argue and what I think the text is teaching, is that he's actually talking about an eschatological crazy army unlike which we have never seen the likes of before and that he's using the locust plague. And the one reason why I would, um, you know, for those of you thinking it's the locusts, well, the locusts have already come in chapter one. They've already happened, okay? He's just using that as, hey, because this has happened, you need to watch out for this. Actually, Deuteronomy 28 is very clear. When you know the locusts have come, you know that there is going to be you know, armies and all this stuff, and they're going to take you into exile, okay? That's the escalation. This is what you need to be afraid of. But I also think what Joel is doing here, and we see this throughout, is that because he's doing an escalation there, there's going to be language 
throughout, and you actually even see this in Joel 2.25, right? I'll just jump ahead there. Joel, Joel 2.25. This is a period of restoration. The prophet is seeing the future of what's going to happen in Israel. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. And so he's actually putting on top of one another this locust army comparison, okay? And so if you're like, man, I don't know if he's talking about locust, I don't know if he's talking about army, that's actually a good question to ask, okay? I was going to get to this later, but Judges chapter 6 and also in Jeremiah, he uses this illustration of literal armies. Um, In Judges 6, he's talking about um, the Midianites, I think. He says, they're in the land like locusts. He's comparing them to locusts. Jeremiah, um, I think it's 51, when he's talking about um, the Babylonian army being destroyed. They're going to be destroyed, you know, by a a group of men like locusts, okay? So Joel, he's already made that comparison between locusts and armies, and now he's, if you will, flipping the script, right? These locusts, how bad they were, yes, you need to watch out for, or you don't need to watch, they've already happened. You need to be aware of this great eschatological locust-like army, which you actually see in Revelation 9, right? You guys remember that? in Revelation 9, where it's like the appearance of the locusts, and then it's like they have crazy teeth, women's hair, like all this stuff, and it's like, okay, these are clearly not locusts, okay? But it's some crazy army that's going to come, okay? So, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the very fact that he says their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Well, it's not talking about locusts then because we've already seen that, right? It's something different. Does that make sense? Okay, but you guys were supposed to do some homework, okay? I've already mentioned some of these passages. When you're reading through this, what were you like? Hey, it reminded me of this passage, maybe in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Did any passages ring a bell? There's no wrong answer. Well, there definitely is, but we're all learning here. Okay, good. Yep. Good. We're going to talk about that. Good. Anyone else? Anything? Revelation. Okay. Revelation 9 I already mentioned. It's kind of cheating, but that's okay. Yes. What does he say? Well, well, we'll we'll get there. Good. Matthew twenty four. That's a great connection. Good. Good. Okay. We'll we'll get through this passage because I I think we can in fifteen twenty minutes. Okay. The day of the Lord's destruction. This is a transition section. Okay. Joel is taking the historical plague of locusts that has happened that has devastated the land as a precursor of the day of the Lord, okay? And so we should not be surprised when he's making these comparisons to the locusts to the day of the Lord because, well, they're, they're, they're related, right? Because this happened, we know this is going to happen, okay? So there's some interplay between the two. This is what he wants us um, to see, the day of the Lord. Okay, so let's just start because we need to go. Blow a trumpet in Zion, okay? Blow a trumpet in Zion. This is God telling his people to do this. Sound an alarm, on my holy mountain, Zion, holy mountain, Jerusalem. He's talking about God's place, his um, dwelling place in his temple in Jerusalem, okay? So obviously, the threat is very serious because Jerusalem's your capital, right? So all the surrounding nation, like this is DEFCON 1, right? Or maybe it's DEFCON 5. Is it more serious when it goes up or down? Okay, it's DEFCON 5. Sometimes it goes down. I, I, it's one of those things. It doesn't make sense, right? This, it's either DEFCON 1 or 5, whichever one's worse, right? This is not good. I don't have time, but all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see trace throughout. Um, cross-reference Isaiah 2 um, and uh, Ezekiel 28. But you see the significance of mountains, okay? The significance of mountains in God's redemptive plan. Ezekiel 28 
And also Genesis 1 and 2 are very clear that Eden was on an elevated place, okay? Maybe not a mountain, but a hill, okay? Something like that, because the water runs down, okay? Ezekiel 28 actually says, um, you know, it actually says, you know, my holy mountain is talking about Eden, okay? So it's very clear, okay? You move through um, Exodus 20, and you come to Mount Sinai, right, where the law is given. You come to Isaiah chapter 2, and, you know, Isaiah is looking forward to this glorious day when God himself is going to dwell on this holy mountain and there's going to be peace on the earth rather than actually water flowing down the mountain. It actually uses the language of the people flowing up. And it's using water language that people are actually going to go up. Then you come to Matthew chapter five. It's not a coincidence that Jesus' sermon on the mount takes place on a what? On a mountain, right? There's actually incredible significance to God working through mountains and significant events. And here we see Joel is contributing to that piece of the puzzle, saying, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. So there's significance to Jerusalem that continues all throughout Scripture. And he says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. And actually, once you see, you jump down to the end of verse 2, he says, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. That sounds a lot like Joel 1, verse 2, right? He says, if such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers, you know, you need to tell your children, you know, throughout all generations, right? You know, earlier in verse 1, he says, hear this, you elders, all the inhabitants of the land, uh, you know, the third line of verse 1, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. So he's making this comparison, right? He's going back to the locust plague. Hey, there's similar language there, right? He's using the locust plague to point forward to something greater, right? He's, he's wanting us to see, okay, a lot of this sounds similar, the locusts and what he's going to describe in the day of the Lord. That connection is significant. That's intentional by the prophet. For the day of the Lord is coming, okay? So whatever he's going to describe here, again, this is why I wouldn't say he's just talking about the same locusts in chapter one because those locusts have already come and verse 15 makes it clear they're just a preview of coming attractions, right? Something worse. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's still to come. Now we come to what Lamar pointed out. This is really important, really good. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there's spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Um, I'm not going to ask this, I'm just going to tell you, um, because it's important. Exodus 10. Remember the plagues? What's the eighth plague? Sounds like Jesus, but it's probably locusts. (laughs) Do you guys understand that? It sounds like Jesus? Okay, so like my Sunday school teacher growing up, he would actually flip it the other way, but he would say, you know, in the third graders, they're just, you know, so excited, and you ask a question, you know, like, what's the Sunday school answer? It's Jesus, right? But he would actually say, you know, it sounds like squirrel, because that's what kids say. It's like, oh, squirrel, oh, you know, they just have no attention span. It's like, it sounds like squirrel, but it's probably Jesus, okay? But I said this like a couple weeks ago. I was like, the answer in this class, if you don't know it, is probably locusts, okay? So I'm saying, you know, it sounds like Jesus, but it's not. It's actually locusts, right? The eighth plague was locusts, okay? That's what went through Egypt, okay? Now, this, the answer to this, don't, don't give me locusts. Locusts is not the answer, because obviously they're the eighth plague. But in light of what we just read, a day of darkness and gloom, what's the ninth plague? What's the plague after locusts? Darkness. Remember that? The thick darkness, okay? Joel is reading his Bible, He's reading Exodus. He's reading Deuteronomy. He's reading and understanding exactly what God wants him to understand and what God wants us to understand, right? That all of this, all of these patterns are significant. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 28, I'll just turn there. Um, Deuteronomy 28, verse 29, this is again in that section of curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 29 says this. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, okay? One of the curses that's going to come upon you is darkness. You come over to 
Um, Deuteronomy 28, verse 60 says, he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, okay? Well, Egypt is God's enemy. We get that. He was judging them to show the greatness of God. But what's going on here? Who is he judging? Israel, his own people, right? They have sinned. And so an Israelite, whenever this was written and whenever they're reading this, is making those connections. Like, oh my goodness, like this is what God did to Egypt. And this is happening to us because of the seriousness of our sin. You see that, that language is very important. So Lamar, good job, you did your homework. You're quoting Zephaniah and darkness and stuff. You got us on the right path. Good job. A for effort. <laughs> hey, whoa, 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 we're not there yet, we're not there yet. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, we will get there though. Good, good job, Teresa. Yes, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, thick darkness. This is going to be unparalleled even to what happened uh, in Egypt with the Exodus plagues. Um, you also see in Deuteronomy 5, um, this language of darkness and um, day of clouds, gloom, all this stuff, um, the only other times you really see it is Exodus and also at Sinai, okay? So these very, very important moments, one-of-a-kind events um, previewing um, the day of the Lord. They're like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Um, he says a great and powerful people. Um, he's not talking about locusts, not exactly sure exactly what they are. There's comparisons to locusts, but some kind of military force. And if you're like, you can't pin it down, that's okay, because I can't pin it down either. But there is some type of military force that's coming. You guys can look this up later, but um, Ezekiel 38, verses 9 to 16, if you're like, man, I don't know what that is. That's the prophecy of Gog and Magog. Okay, you're like, man, Gog and Magog, what is that? Well, Gog and Magog is actually a very um, tricky um, passage. It only appears, that Gog and Magog only appears Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20, okay? And so exactly what interpreters do with that passage is different. It'll differ um, depending on their kind of, you know, presuppositions and what they're bringing to the text. But um, in that passage, in Ezekiel 38, 9 and verse 16, it talks about that army like a cloud covering the land, okay? And so I think there might be some, again, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I think there's some textual work that maybe could be done there um, that Joel and Ezekiel are, are picking up one on another. Okay, verse three. He says, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns, right? We already saw that comparison with Joel 1, um, 19 to 20. There's this near illusion, right? Here's what happened with the locust. This is going to come in the day of the Lord in a far greater way. And you kind of see, you know, this before and behind parallelism. I think Travis already mentioned this, right? So fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, right? The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, you know, a desolate wilderness. This is total destruction. Nothing escapes them. Actually, the exact grammatic phrase, Garden of Eden, I mean, you guys get this. Like, Eden is important, right? It's like, hey, G Genesis 1, this is really important, okay? It actually doesn't really appear all that often in the Old Testament. You'll see Eden, you know, and stuff like that, you know, the Garden of God. But when you actually see Garden of Eden, it's only here and Ezekiel 36. I don't have time to work all this out, but Ezekiel 36, I've already talked about Gog and Magog later in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 36 that context there is God giving the new covenant to Israel, right? Remember that, you know, he's like, I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Um, you know, I'm going to breathe new life into you, all this stuff. Hey, you know, these spiritual realities. Well, tied to those spiritual realities are like national realities. Like that's going to happen, but Israel's also going to be restored to the land. And that's when he talks about, it's only there and, uh, yeah, Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, where there's that exact construction garden of Eden. And so Joel could be indicating that when this happens, when the day of the Lord, this judgment is going to come, that Israel, the state of the nation of Israel, is actually going to be like the Garden of Eden. In other words, it's going to be restored, okay? So 
like not how it is right now. Like Israel's not, like it's a good place, I've heard. I mean, I haven't been there yet, but you know, it's, it's got some nice stuff, but it's not like the Garden of Eden. There's nothing on earth like the Garden of Eden right now. And so it seems that Joel is maybe previewing, hey, this could happen in the future. Verse four, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Now it's, it's like three times there he's trying to get us to understand He's, he's making three, see how he says appearance, like, and appearance? So it's like, are they horses? No, right? He's trying to describe, hey, this is, it's something like this. What I'm seeing is, is like this, right? And like war horses, they run. You see this all throughout, like, appearance, all this stuff. It's, he's talking about similarity, not identity, they're similar to this, but this is not exactly what they are. It's not exactly, you know, it, maybe it sounds like locusts. It's not exactly, you know, a regular army. It's something similar to both of those. And that makes sense, right, when you turn to Revelation 9, because it's not locusts and it's not a regular army, right? Like, it's something different, right? Okay? Appearances like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. I mean, like, this is, like, very clearly, okay, he's not talking about chariots. I mean, I'm no expert, but, like, typically, if, if you've got chariots in your army, are you taking your chariots across the mountains? Where, where do chariots typically fight? Like, are, 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 are chariots a four-wheel drive off-road vehicle? No, right? You, you're going to get your, your wheels going to break, right? No, they fight down in the plains, right? And if you've got, you know, the chariots are kind of like the, uh, I don't know, what are we on, the M1A2 Abrams tank? Like, that's, that's like, if you've got the chariots, you are, you are the commanding force, okay? That's the, a sign of power. But when he says here they leap on the tops of the mountains, like, like, clearly, he's not talking about literal chariots here, because chariots aren't leaping on tops of mountains, they're actually down in the valley, okay? It's not a chariot, you know, it sounds like maybe it'd be a locust, uh, we're not exactly sure. Like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful ar army drawn up for battle. War is coming. I want you to turn to Revelation 9 real quick. So maybe you're saying, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about here. What are these comparisons? Revelation 9, he talks about this is the um, fifth trumpet judgment. And this angel opens this key to this bottomless pit, and he sees the smoke rising out of it, and the sun and the air were darkened, right? We'll see that eventually, right? He talks about um, verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts. Jump down to verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. Does that sound like anything we just read in Joel? Very much so. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Okay, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. Please, someone don't draw this picture. I, this is terrifying. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle, right? Sounds like Joel again. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek, he's called Apollyon. And that is a scary picture, okay? And I think John is helping us to understand what's going on in Joel. And maybe you're like me, you're like, John, it doesn't help that much. Like, I, I still don't know exactly what you're seeing. Um, well, I don't think he understood exactly what he was seeing either, which is why he's saying the appearance was like this. But I think he's saying, hey, here's an aspect of the day of the Lord. And he's just picking up on Joel. Verse six. Verse six. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. The people see the danger. They hear it. They're terrified. They're in anguish. It's a word commonly used for uh, uh, a woman in labor pains, right? This is terrifying. Um, I already mentioned 
this, um, but in verse 7, he's talking about like warriors, like soldiers, they march, they do not jostle, they burst through the weapons, all this stuff. Um, here's your references if you wanted them. Uh, ju- uh, Judges 7, verse 12, and Jeremiah 51, verse 14. Those are two clear passages where armies are compared to locusts, and here in Joel, he's in one sense flipping the script, you know, locusts comparing them to armies. Judges 7.12 and Jeremiah 51, verse 14. Jeremiah 51, verse 14. So like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. And I think, I mean, I understand what, what Solomon is saying in, in Proverbs 30. But I mean, if you watch like a locust plague, it's chaotic. Like they're flying all over the place and eating all kinds of stuff, okay? And this, on the other hand, what Joel is describing here is not like locusts where they're just, you know, flying all over the place and absolutely eating everything. This is kind of like a perfect, you know, almost you could say like robotic invasion of this army where they're just invincible, right? They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons. It's kind of, the ESV kind of translates it kind of weird there, but they burst through the weapons. It, it's this picture of like a projectile. Okay, so think of like a, um, like a javelin, right? Like if I throw a javelin, you know, at someone, you know, if they don't have any armor, you know, they're going to die. They get impaled. The, the picture here is, you know, the guy's throwing a javelin at him, and it just, it just shatters, and they're not halted. Like, they just keep marching, right? This is an unstoppable army. Like, the weapons are literally doing nothing. There's no stopping these guys. They rush upon the city. Um, I don't know why the ESV translates it leap. It's just better translated rush. I think it could be because the ESV wants to see it as, you know, literal locusts. Um, I actually don't know, but it's rush or fall upon the city. Um, They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. You kind of have this narrowing focus here. He starts at the city, right? And then he goes to the walls. That's their main defenses. Finally, they're in the houses, right? The city is defenseless. This is total domination. They enter through the windows like a thief. Okay, Teresa, what was that passage you mentioned earlier? Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5. Listen to this. If I can turn there. What have we been talking about in Joel? The day of the day of the Lord. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. And so I wasn't going to say this, but almost at, at at the top here of chapter 5, Paul's saying like, hey, concerning the time of these things, you don't need to worry about this. He's almost saying as if, look, the, the church in Thessalonica understood what was coming, okay? And this is the reason why I'm saying this is it goes back to 1 Peter 1 verse 11 where Peter is talking about how the prophets, they did not know the timing of events, but they knew these events were coming, okay? Paul seems to be saying the same thing. You know, concerning the times and seasons, hey, You don't need to worry about that, okay? We don't know that. You have no need to have anything written to you. Verse two, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a what? Like a thief in the night. And I think Paul is just picking up what Joel is saying in Joel 2, 9. In this context here, we're gonna see in the next verse. You guys find if I just go like five minutes long? If we just finish through verse 11, because I think it'll help us get to verse 12. But he's talking about darkness, and they're going to come like a thief. You come down verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers. Well, where I think is he getting that darkness from? I think he's also alluding to Joel. You're not in this darkness. This day of the Lord is not going to befall you. For that day to surprise you like a thief. It's not going to. This isn't going to happen. You can see how... Paul's making that connection there with Joel. You also see in 2 Peter uh, 3, verse 10, I believe. You guys are probably familiar 
Remember this passage, right? Peter's, what's that? Uh, this is Second Peter 3, verse 10, where Peter writes, but the day of the Lord, there's that same phrase again, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so Paul and Peter, I think, are getting their terminology from Joel. They want us to see these connections, these clear illusions that this day of the Lord is still in the future, okay? And that's why I would disagree with it, you know, still just being regular locusts or even the Babylonian army or like the Assyrian army. Because from the perspective of the New Testament writers, this day of the Lord that Joel's describing still hasn't happened yet. Does that make sense? They're still pointing forward to something still to come. Verse 10 of Joel 2. Joel 2, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. You're going to see that two other times in Joel, Joel 2, 31 and 3, 15, right? The entire universe is in turmoil. And again, this is all still in the same context of this army. Again, we don't, we don't know exactly what this is. But he's not just talking about locusts, right? Because like the earth, like the entire universe is messed up, right? You guys see that? Like this is something crazy. This is eschatological. This is end times. This is something where we're supposed to, it's supposed to stretch the limits of what we you know, think is normal in history. This is something else. Cosmic signs and wonders. This did not happen when locusts came or when Assyrians came, right? The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Just write this down, look it up later. Isaiah 13, verse 6 through 10, the whole passage there, that whole section there. Isaiah's talking about the day of the Lord. He mentions it twice, exact same phrase. He's talking about the day of the Lord coming on Babylon, and he uses this exact same language of the sun and moon being darkened, stars withdrawing, they're shining. And someone mentioned this, but who else? Okay, well, you guys are going to not like me for this. It's not locusts. Sounds like locusts, but it's probably Jesus. Yes, flip it. Who else says something like this? Jesus. It's like, this, I can't stand this guy. He's inconsistent. Which is Right? You guys remember the Olivet Discourse, maybe when Mark preached on this? Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, what does he say? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 31 even mentions a loud trumpet call, as Joel 2 alludes to. So I think Jesus is also reading his Bible, and he's wanting us to see these connections and pointing forward to a day still to come. Revelation 6 also makes a connection here. Revelation 6, verse, I wrote it down somewhere, 6, verse 12. This is the sixth seal. He says, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, that is what Joel 2.10 mentions, that there's an earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The, moon, uh, the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Okay? So you've got all these connections, okay? And I want to be clear on this. I'm not saying that, you know, now you know the exact fulfillment. And, you know, you're just like, oh, okay, now I've got it all figured out. I don't have any other questions. Oh, it all makes perfect sense to me now, okay? Because it doesn't make perfect sense to me, okay? But what I want you guys to see is that the prophets and the apostles are very intentional with their language, okay? And they're wanting us to see these connections. And I think they're wanting us to see, particularly with Joel, that this still is unfulfilled, that we're still waiting for this, okay? I'm going to end right here, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, right? Here's why the day of the Lord is so powerful and terrible, Who's the one causing all this? Who's the one leading this army? God. God himself is leading an army against what? His people, right? Against Israel because of their sin. You could say he's the general of this army, and this is not crazy. I mean, we see this Isaiah 8. It's one of my favorite passages. I remember reading Isaiah 8 
and I think I was in like in high school or college, and I was still, you know, fighting with like the sovereignty of God. And Isaiah 8 is just so clear when God talks about, um, you know, talks about awe, Assyria, you know, um, I think like the, their, uh, the rod in their hand is my fury. I mean, he just goes through how God is just going to use Assyria to his glory. And then when he's done using Assyria to judge Israel, he's going to judge Assyria because they're proud and boastful and all this stuff. And I was just like, man. So God uses these pagan nations, these forces that are, we would say, are evil. God uses them for his own glory. Before his army, he's uttering his voice. For his camp is exceedingly great. This is all his, right? He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So very clearly, right? You have, you have top and bottom there, right? Verse one, he's talking about the day of the Lord. Verse 11, what's he still talking about? What did everything we just talked about, what was it about? Day of the Lord and very much a day of judgment, right? This is a day that we should be terrified from how does it end? Who can endure it? What's the obvious answer? No one. No one. And so just as Yahweh has used the locusts in chapter one, the locusts that have happened as a wake-up call, he's saying, hey, guys, the locusts were bad, but be terrified of this. This is horrifying. And so the answer for us as we're, we're thinking through, man, how do I apply Joel? It's still the same thing. This historical event has happened, but we still need to be terrified. I mean, th- this is why it's important to go through Joel, is sometimes, you know, if we spend some time in certain books, like we miss the portions of the Bible that clearly talk about God's judgment, okay? The Bible clearly preaches judgment to terrify us to turn to the Lord. And that is a grace in and of itself. God could have said nothing and just judged you righteously. But he warns us, and if you're like, well, what do I do? Joel 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Fasting with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. So I want to leave us there because, sorry I kept you guys late, but that gets us into a really good spot to get into verse 12. And Joel 2, 12 to 17 is one of the most glorious chapters in all of scripture about true repentance, biblical repentance. What does repentance look like? And so we got through the valley of judgment. Like you're just like, oh my goodness, this is, oh, this is rough. Okay, well, hey, there's good. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, again, I, I don't think the day of the Lord, I think the day of the Lord is unfolded throughout the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think it's God's final judgment on all wicked and evildoers, and that's going to continue, you know, that's going to start, you know, when, you know, the, you know, the um, tribulation period and everything in Revelation 6 and following starts, and that's going to continue throughout all eternity, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Anything else? I know, I know you guys have to leave, but I, I know this is a tough passage, okay? And I don't want you guys to presume, hopefully you guys even see through this, like, man, Caleb doesn't know everything, because I don't, okay? But I'm reading, I'm trying to understand exactly what's going on, and I think you can get, I mean, God gave us his word not to confuse us, okay? Right? It's a revelation, right? He wants us to understand, okay? And so I think we can understand even hard passages, hard books like Joel. You can say something? And that's true. What I want to do, though, and I think we should do this when we're reading our scriptures, is we should read through Joel 2 and have fear and then absolutely rejoice when we get to verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. 
Lord, thank you so much for your grace. You, you see what I'm saying there? Because sometimes we can just be, I, again, this goes back to way week one, but it's just like if we just read Joel 1, so that way we can fit everything on our charts of eschatology, and we're like, oh, let me see. Oh, I'm not going to be there, so who cares? It's like, that is horrible. <laughs> that is not why we study the book of Joel, to understand, oh, I don't have to read that part of the Bible, because I mean, you could just get rid of it, right? And so, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, passages like this ought to fuel our burden for evangelism, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think so, yeah. I think, I think he could be talking about Gog and Magog, yeah. But I don't know. He, he could be taught, because I, th- I think it's clear throughout Revelation. I mean, we were even looking at Revelation 9. And I will just say this. I do not have the book of Revelation mastered at all. I read Revelation, I'm like, I don't know how this fits. I don't know. But I read the Old Testament and go, okay, Joel and so-and-so is saying this is going to happen. So it's got to happen at some point, okay? Um, and so trying to find exactly where that fits. I, I have a lot more peace not knowing. I know some people's like, I don't even know. Um, I just... I'm not an expert on Revelation, but it's going to happen sometime in there, Um, whether it's the Battle of Armageddon or um, Gog and Magog. The reason why I would say Gog and Magog is because Joel 2, 3 talks about the land being a garden of Eden before them. So then I would say that, okay, well then it seems to be that Israel has been restored to the land. In other words, you know, like what we're going to read in Joel 3 and all this stuff has happened. I mean, Joel 3 is very, very clear that there's this glorious future for Israel in the land, but at the same time, I mean, you just read Joel 3, verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plows into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. It's just an ironic, if you guys remember Isaiah 2, he says just the opposite, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. This is just the opposite. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. And they're, <laughs> like, this is God saying, hey, you know, weak dude, you know, man up for battle. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to beat God. And it's just like, God just absolutely destroys them, right? And verse 14, for the day of the Lord is near. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw, they're shining. So I would tend to see it in the battle of Gog and Magog, but I could be, I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not dogmatic on that. Does that make sense? Hopefully. I've kept you guys way too long, so you're dismissed. More than happy to answer any questions.